It would be easy for you or me or anyone hearing our study of the book of Ecclesiastes to accuse us of arrogance. But we're going to defend the arrogance of God. Amen. There's one being in the universe. God does not know humility. He doesn't need humility. He is God. And Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He humbled himself to death. But he did not humble himself from knowing that he was the only way of salvation. He was the only truth in the universe. In him were hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that he was the life. And God does not apologize for the truth of his word. And he calls the rest of the world's thinking to be foolishness numerous times. And I want to remind you a few things, lest you be discouraged in thinking that we are arrogant. This is, what, this is exactly what we believe and where we stand and where we shall stand. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. We have not learned or figured out any one of the things that we claim from this pulpit or out of this pulpit. It is by the grace of God that's revealed it to us. Amen. We are not worthy of it above any other man, but God in his mercy has shown it to us. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. We should never apologize for having the truth, and we should declare that truth in the appropriate settings with dogmatism without fear of man, and ridicule the foolish ideas that have been set up against the Word of God. We love this verse from Psalm 119 and verse 128. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That is our spirit. That is the spirit of the sweet psalmist of Israel. David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel, but that's the way he spoke. That's the way we want to speak. Therefore, I I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. And the false philosophies that have made war against the word of God, especially in the last 2,500 years, deserve to be made fun of. Oh, for more Elijahs that would stand up and make fun of the prophets of Baal. Amen. Psalm 119, 113, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. That's how a man after God's own heart writes and talks, and that's the way we want to write and talk. We don't have the wisdom in and of ourselves. It's all by revelation. We haven't rationalized anything. They're the ones that say that they've arrived at truth by rationalizing in their minds. Our minds haven't come up with a bit of this. This is from the mind of God to us. We're not going to apologize for it. They're all idiots. Amen. That isn't arrogance. That's defending the truth of God's word. Yes, right. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. True. The isms that I mentioned to you, go home and read them. Go home and read a short definition of nihilism, of idealism, of existentialism. Existentialism sounds like a long and complicated word. The first five letters are these. E-X-I-S-T. It's based entirely on your existence. Because you exist, that gives you essence. And that gives you the liberty to decide how you're going to live your life. And there is no one or no divine being that can tell you how to live because your existence makes you valuable. That's insanity. I read to you earlier today. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 8. No, I read to you Isaiah 8 and verse 20. Isaiah 8, 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Not that they're dim, they're dark. Because it tells us in Romans chapter 1 that when they did not give glory to God as the Creator, and neither were they thankful in their hearts, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Wherefore, God also, in a second stage of darkening, rewired them to think in the Greek world that love between two men was the highest level of love you could ever achieve. And those are the men that they want you to adore and follow and read about in university classes of philosophy. Jeremiah would put it this way, words that we know well. The prophet that hath a dream, 
The philosopher that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord? And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? That's how we want to use the word of God. And dash these false isms and these philosophies that have made war against the New Testament. I so much enjoyed having Acts 17 read to us this morning. When the Apostle Paul was in Athens, his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He went into that marketplace daily with anyone that would meet with them, with him, and he told them how foolish their religion was. And when they took him, they, they called him a babbler. If you think that I'm mean toward them, you ought to hear them talk about us. We are the most hated segment of society in this world. Bible-believing Christians. Because on the authority of the Word of God, we tell them that they don't have a clue what they're talking about, that we have in our possession absolute truth, and that their eternal destiny is judgment, and our eternal destiny is pleasure. They hate that. They hate little people who have never gone to their universities and who scoff at their educational systems, claim to have knowledge and wisdom that exceeds theirs. Isn't that wonderful? God's made the fools of this world to be wise. And he's made the wise of this world to be fools. There's so many verses I want to share with you right now before I even get to my outline that's going to lead us toward Ecclesiastes. But look what it, 1 Timothy chapter 4, you know what the Lord thinks of their thoughts? Refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Do you know what the Lord calls their thinking? Old wives' fables. Chapter 6, do you know what he says about those that want to teach contrary to the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ? He is proud. Do you know what real humility is? God is right. That's humility. God is right. But those that want to fight against the wholesome words and doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. That's what the Lord says about them. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. They call philosophy a science. It's their speculative reasoning, hallucination, and imaginations about things they have no idea of. We have revelation from the God who did it all. Amen. We are not arrogant. We are dogmatic. And we will defend our God and His Word. We will defend the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we speak highly of Solomon, we know one greater than Solomon. He sits at the right hand of God. And he is the greatest. I I hate to use this word, but I I know that you know what I mean. He is the greatest philosopher this world has ever seen because he declared the truth of God without any error. And he lived it. What an example we have. We don't need Socrates in bed with Plato. We need the Lord Jesus Christ on the right hand of God following him. That's the basis for a sound life. Amen. The purpose of Ecclesiastes. You know, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is probably stated more clearly than any other book in the Bible. Because it starts right off by telling you why he's writing the book. And he ends up by telling you why he wrote it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 3, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Everything we do in this life which is under the sun, there's another life that we don't read a whole lot about in Ecclesiastes. It's on the other side of the sun. We're going to get that later. But what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? What is the fulfillment of life? What is the purpose for it? What is the profit of it? What is real happiness and how can I get it? He tells you in the third verse. That's where he's going. And he applied himself. He says it numerous times. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly. I tried every approach 
till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. And we've all, we already know the conclusion. We have the key of, to success. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And if they come up with any other idea, it's because there is no light in them. And we aren't being arrogant. We're declaring the truth of God's Word. We have rested our lives, and we are betting our lives on the Word of God that it's true. There's no reason to believe that it's not true, and a whole lot of reasons to believe that it is true. But we know it's true because the Spirit witnesses within our heart that it's true. We love to read it. It told me that Socrates and Plato would go to bed together. Romans chapter 1. Don't you get excited about that? Men who profess themselves to be wise are going to end up in bed with each other. It's exciting. The whole Bible confirms truth and condemns error. The purpose of Ecclesiastes is to find and identify and summarize a perfect philosophy for life. And he's going to show all the false philosophical ideas about riches and, and purpose and being and timing and providence as we go through these chapters. May the Lord bless us. And I'm trying today to give you a foundation for it and to excite you to read one chapter in the morning, one chapter at night. Let's read the book of Ecclesiastes once a week as we go through this book. Let's, if God will help us, let's look at every phrase and sentence and see if we can grasp the sense that God's given to it. So that we can understand that Solomon took apart so many bad ideas and put together so many good ideas in 12 short chapters. And you don't have to pay for it. It's free from the most qualified man there ever was on earth but for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's inspired by God to boot. These are his words in 12 short chapters. You know, we we heard an answer this morning that you can read the whole book in 36 minutes. You take one philosophy class, you'll have to buy, as I said, at least a, a 700-page book. It's going to cost you 150 bucks, and the author of the book doesn't know what he's talking about, and the teacher trying to explain it to you doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. In 36 minutes, you're going to read, there's so much wisdom packed into Ecclesiastes. It is a philosophy for a godly life. And you know what? There's little mention of it in Christ because the Old Testament was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I get to that last verse, and if it wasn't for the New Testament, I'd still be hopeless. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You know what that verse is there for? It's to drive you to Christ. The Old Testament was set up as a preliminary section of Scripture in God's revelation to get you ready for the New Testament. You read Ecclesiastes, and by the time you get to verse 13, you say, Praise the Lord! There's an answer. It's not all vanity. It's fear God and keep His commandments. But then you read verse 14 and you say, I need a Savior because I've got a whole bunch of secret things I don't want to be in judgment for. But you're left. Period. Then you get Paul. He was a decent philosopher, wasn't he? They could call him a babbler. I'm glad that through the dark ages there were groups of men that were called Paulicians. Do you know why they were called Paulicians? Because they were followers of the Apostle Paul and his writings to Gentile churches of the New Testament. And he sure took apart the Greek philosophers in Athens, didn't he? The Epicureans and Stoics and their philosophers came against him and they took him to Areopagus. He was in the think tank of the world. In the think tank of the world, he told them they didn't know what they were doing. He could see that in all things they were too superstitious. And why in the world were they building stupid idols to the God that gave breath to all men and had created the worlds and the heavens? He tore them apart in just a couple of minutes. And then he said, God's commanding all men everywhere to repent because he is sending a man, Christ Jesus, to judge the world. And he's given assurance of that coming judgment because he raised him from the dead. They had never heard anything like that in their lives. He took them apart. They made fun of him. Some said, we'll hear you again. But when he got up and walked out, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Tamaris followed him out. Praise the Lord. I hope that we're with them right now in spirit. Our thinking men have weighed the purpose or profit of life since God created man in Eden. What am I here for? They've never been able to figure it out because the only way to know it is by revelation. 
I'm going to say it over and over again. Truth is by revelation. It is not by rationalization. You can read about the age of reason all you want. The age of reason didn't solve a thing for the world. We can't reason out truth. We can't discover truth or figure it out. Truth is by revelation. God has to reveal it to us. He has to show it to us. He's put it in print. He's put it in our hearts. He's given us the spirit to teach it to us. He sends ministers to teach it. They're called masters of assemblies in the book of Ecclesiastes. And they're called preachers. And we have the best that earth could produce. The most experienced man. This is no athlete telling you that that he loved the Lord and he played in the NFL. This is King Solomon. He was prepared to write this book. And like I finished up a few minutes ago, when a poor man tells you that riches don't matter, you laugh at him. What does he know? But when the richest man in the world tells you that riches are terrible, you say, really? That's why God put Solomon to write Ecclesiastes. When a man who's only been married to one or two women in his lifetime wants to tell you about women, what does he know? Solomon had a thousand, so when he writes about women, and he'll write about women, you listen. Perfect. Thank you, Lord. You know, our generation's too confused by noise and activity. They don't think anymore. We should be thinking about why we're here and serving the Lord. And we know the answer to it. We don't have to try to figure it out. It's just to reflect on it. Am I fulfilling the purpose God's given me? Every day of our lives, we should be thinking about it. It's important for us to meditate. And yet, any meditating outside the Word of God is totally worthless. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through and 2 tell us that if you try to think without faith as your starting point, you are an unreasonable and wicked man. Can you believe it? They say, they say that we're unreasonable because we start our reasoning from faith in God's Word. Where do they start theirs from? They've got faith, too, that their ideas make sense. They accuse us of circular reasoning, that we start with the Bible and say that we start, we start with the Bible and we say we believe the Bible because the Bible is God's Word because the Bible tells us it's God's Word. And they say, well, that's just circular. Oh, what a great place to start. I'll reason in that circle all day long. Amen. God created the heavens and the earth and He wrote a book called the Bible and He told, told us all about Him and what we're supposed to be doing for Him. They reason from nothing. So they end up in insanity. Here's what God thinks about schools of philosophy. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Amen. That's what he thinks. We shouldn't be surprised that God and Solomon would write a short philosophy for us. The world's greatest thinkers have wasted their lives trying to write a philosophy. Their anti-God and anti-Bible premises and logic lead to imaginations of folly and vanity. We know the origin of worldly philosophies. The Bible tells us about it in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1. When a man professes himself to be wise, God turns him into a fool. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 3, the same thing. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. God has purpose to destroy men who think they know something when they leave him out of the equation. Listen, God is the whole equation. Right. God is not our co-pilot. God's the pilot. We're along for the ride. Those bumper stickers make me ill. God is my co-pilot. You ever seen that? Then who's piloting your plane? They must be. God's the pilot and I'm a passenger. And I'm a, you know, one brother's already mentioned we're about ready to make a departure, aren't we? We're going to go straight into heaven and be with him forever. That's That's what death is called. The time for my departure has arrived. Paul is ready to depart. He's just going to leave this world and go into the next one. God used Solomon to write this book. Thank you, Lord. You know, Paul warned us about philosophy and vain deceit and the rudiments of the world. In Colossians chapter 2, Beware, lest any man spoil you. Spoil you. Through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Those two sentences go together. We have the greatest source for wisdom, truth, 
and knowledge in the universe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be built up, rooted in Him, and walking in Him according to the truth He's given us. And it will save us from all that vain philosophy and deceit of men. That's why the Apostle Paul had such a foundation for his thinking, for his speaking, was the Lord Jesus Christ. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That excels all the wisdom in the world. When Paul was in Athens, he ran into two schools of philosophy that are mentioned there in Acts 17 and verse 18. Epicureanism is from Epicurus, a Greek. To summarize it very simplistically, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The highest goal in life is pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's all they know. Nothing about righteousness, nothing about heaven. Paul ran into them in Athens. You read about when you take a philosophy course, you have to encounter this school of philosophy. It's in the Bible. Paul dealt with it. They took him to Areopagus, and he said they were all nuts. Stoicism. A Stoic. Same time period. Third century B.C. 500 years after Solomon. They come up with the idea... That there's determinism, fate, there's fatalism that controls our lives, and yet we have power within ourselves to make a choice, to discipline ourselves, to be indifferent to pain and pleasure. (laughs) Two conflicting schools. No wonder the third school was skepticism. Skepticism meaning there ain't anything that can be known for truth. There ain't anything that can be known to be right. No wonder. And so these Greeks played around with thinking too much instead of trusting. We don't think. We trust. We read. We believe. And we do. That's faith. I've already been through rationalism is the source of knowledge and truth is from your reasoning. Existentialism is you exist. So that makes you important enough to determine how you're going to live in your fate. Idealism is that nothing outside of your mind is actually real. Christian scientists are that way. You know, any disease you ever run into as a Christian scientist, it's just a state of your mind that's causing it. If you would just get your mind cleared up, you'd get rid of that disease. All these false isms and philosophies and views of the world. There's disease, and we know where it came from. It came from our first parents in the Garden of Eden, the God of Heaven, justly judging our race with disease and he can judge anyone he wants from babies on up and he does and he's just and holy in it because we deserved it because we rebelled against him the theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity of life look at that second verse of the first chapter he introduces himself in the first verse the words of the preacher Solomon himself the son of David king in Jerusalem Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the theme. Till he gets to the conclusion that there is hope, there is meaning, there is value, there is happiness. It's in knowing and fearing God and keeping his commandments. We better understand the word vanity, though, because you know we're going to run into it a few times in the book of Ecclesiastes. In 12 chapters, we're going to run into it about 38 times. But notice how he starts out, vanity of vanities. That's a pretty bad vanity. That's like king of kings. A king of kings is a superlative king that's over other kings. And this must be a vanity in a superlative form that's the worst vanity of all. But let's first of all answer, what is vanity? Vanity is, are those things that are vain, futile, or worthless. They're empty. They have no profit. They're wasteful, pointless, and hollow. Empty. Nothing. Wasteful. Hopeless. Profitless. Futile. That's vanity. Well, what about a vanity of vanities? Well, when you get all the vanities together, all the worthless, wasteful, foolish, empty things in life, the worst one of them is human existence without God. That's the less, 
That's the lesson of the book. The worst vanity that you can imagine is being born, living, and dying without God. And yet, the whole world is born, lives, and dies without God. And they don't want you to talk about God. And they don't want you to bring God's book with you when you come to their schools. They don't want to learn about God. But it's the vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Because all in life is vanity. So to be born, to live, and to die is vanity of vanities. The superlative of vanity. The superlative of wastefulness, worthlessness, profitlessness, futility, emptiness. Is to be born, to live, and to die without God as the center of your universe. Solomon had a decent father. Here's what he learned in philosophy class. Because we read some verses this morning from Proverbs chapter 4, where Solomon said, My father taught me. I was my father's son. Out of all David's sons, David loved Solomon, and David taught him. You want to see what he learned? Psalm 39. We're looking at the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're thinking about its theme. And its theme is all is vanity, vanity of vanities. Here's what David taught him. We already read some things that David taught him in Proverbs chapter 4. Remember, wisdom is the principal thing. Son, Solomon, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all thy getting, get wisdom, get understanding. And I reminded you, no wonder when the the Lord appeared to him and said, Solomon, what can I do for you? What came? Boom. Give me wisdom. Give me understanding. I don't know how to go out or to come in before these great people of yours. Even though he had watched his father do it for probably 30 years. He wanted wisdom because his dad had taught him that wisdom was the principal thing. Look at Psalm 39. Look at verse 5. This is Solomon's father. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, four inches wide. And mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, Every man in his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Stop and think about that for a minute. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. There's the, there is a summary statement about the vanity that's taught in the book of Ecclesiastes. Thou hast made my days as a handbreadth. My life is so short and it's over with so quickly. Mine ages is nothing before thee, because God inhabits eternity. Verily, every man in his best state is altogether vanity. Verily, verily, of a truth, every man, no matter how high or low socially or economically, every man at his best state is partially Altogether, vanity. What a statement. Surely, every man walketh in a vain show. Surely, they are disquieted in vain. All the noise and activity and worry and frustration and care and pain that you go through in life to heap up riches, you can't take them with you, and you don't know who's going to gather them in and spend them. Solomon's going to give us much on that subject. Man's fulfillment has to be found in a higher end than vanity and vexation in this life. You know, the world's nailed it down this way. But see, they don't have an answer. And please, I hope that no one's offended, but you're just going to have to undo any damage I do by what I'm about to say. And it's not that bad. The world has narrowed it down. They understand the first half of this book, but they they don't have any answers. You know what they say? Life is a bitch and then you die. I love it. I love to read it when they write that. Life is a bitch and then you die. Oh, it isn't a bitch to someone putting their trust in God. And the word bitch there is used, life is a bitch. Life is a pain, trouble. Really, if you really want to know what it means, it's life is a vexation of spirit. That is what they're saying. Life is vexation of spirit and then you die. Is that, is that not exactly what the book of Proverbs teaches, but they don't have the answer? Is that what? what watch. Look at 9.3. You're going to have to be patient with me. I'm going to get to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9.3. When you read a philosopher writing, life is a bitch and then you die, I, just, I want to shout glory. 
They have figured out the first half of the book, but they have no answer. No answer. Ecclesiastes 9.3, this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. <laughs> that is, that's it right there. See, they, they've, they've, they've learned that by experience, but they have no answers. And so they try, to get rid of the, they try to get rid of God so they won't have to face Him after death. They try to get rid of God so they won't have to conform their lives while they're alive. We have the answers, and, and Solomon's going to give them to us in the Word of God. You know what? They commit suicide to end the pain. Now, that's wise. They abuse various substances, often to addiction. They live in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. They consult false religions and the devil himself, looking for an answer. They try to legislate happiness, prosperity, and safety. They do those things that are not convenient with greed, and they reap the just consequences of their deeds. Consider the choice of words that are used in this book. All is vanity occurs six times. All is vanity. Do you really believe that? When you hear me say some things that are almost fighting words sometimes out of this pulpit, like when I make fun of your little lives, do you know what I'm trying to say to you? All is vanity. There's nothing in your life that isn't vain unless God is first and it's something God has told you to do. Because our little lives don't matter. It's all vanity. All is vanity. Six times in this little book of 12 chapters. Do you grasp the importance that all is vanity? Your favorite hobby is vanity. Your pretty house that is decorated very well is vanity. Your job where you receive praise and get a good paycheck is vanity. Your physical body is vanity. Oh, 12 is going to take care of that for you. Chapter 12. It's all, all is vanity. You don't put your stock in anything in life because it's all vain. You start with God and then God will tell you what he's given you in life to enjoy. Listen, brethren, Christianity, let's, let me tell you a secret. Christianity is win-win. You win in this world and you win in the next. Amen. Do you know when somebody says to me, what if Christianity's wrong? Okay, let's assume that it's wrong. I'm living the best way that there is to live in this whole world. All you have to do is look around and see how everyone else lives that's not a Christian. Compared to those that are true and sincere Christians, I'd rather live that way. And if I end up that there's no life after death, I still will have lived the best way and had the greatest glory and pleasure with God walking with me on earth. You say, well, how do you know there's a God? Because he's witnessing inside of me that he walks with me every day when I'm in fellowship with him. I win. It's win-win. Because when you're a Christian, you put God first, you win in this life, and you win in the next life as well. That is good. Amen. You say, well, the Apostle Paul suffered so much, how can you call that? Why was he singing all the time? Why, why was he talking about rejoicing and being joyful all the time? Why did he say, I'm ready to go? I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. I'm ready. Yes, he suffered. But you know what? God can give you a spirit that that suffering is just icing on the cake. You know why it was icing on the cake to Paul? Because he got to suffer like the Lord Jesus Christ did for him. Right. And he said he enjoyed that fellowship. He had fellowship in suffering because he knew he was like Jesus Christ. That is, you say, that's twisted. That is twisted in a wonderful way. Amen. In a wonderful way. The martyrs could do that. Some of those martyrs would say, you don't have to chain me to this pole. I'll stand here in the flames. I fear I'd need to be chained. But I, I, you know what? I believe God would give grace at that time. That's more than we can even imagine. They would forgive their torturers. They'd sing in the flames. That's a good way to go. Amen. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities occurs two times at the front end of the book and the back end of the book. Remember, what do those words mean? Vanity of vanities? Think king of kings. It's a superlative, meaning it's the ultimate vanity. It's the worst vanity. It's the most empty of all things. That's to live a life without God. That's how he starts the book. That's how he ends the book. And then he gives us the cure.
And he makes a couple hints at it on the way through. Vexation of spirit. Life is a pain. All these things that we labor for, they're not only vain, they're, em- they're not only empty, worthless, and profitless, they're a pain getting them. They're a whole lot of hard work, sweat, labor, tired, tired days when you've got to keep pushing yourself to get anything that ends up being nothing. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Not only is the, are the things of life without God worthless, empty, and futile, they're a pain in trying to get them. That's how thorough Solomon is in telling us this life is just pitiful without God. Without God. Vanity's in there 22 times by itself. And you can read about vanity in Job, Psalms, and Proverbs because those three men in the, in the books of philosophy that we have in the Bible tell us about the vanity of life without God. You know, the, he, Solomon uses the word travail. Trouble and pain. The travail of men. In trying to accomplish anything in life, it's travail, and then they die. It's evil. He uses the word evil not as a synonym for wickedness, but he uses the word evil for trouble and frustration and vexation of spirit. In one place he calls it an evil disease. When he sees men trying to find happiness in this world with this world's thing, and they cannot be found. True knowledge, my dear brothers and sisters, is fearing God and keeping His commandments. That is knowledge, that is truth, that is wisdom. When we use these words, because we use them so often, you do not fully appreciate that those are the things the rest of the world wishes they had. This is why men sit in think tanks and get degrees so they might learn knowledge and truth and wisdom, and we have it poured into us by God the Holy Spirit and written in a simple book that a sixth grader can read. Go, go online and check out scientific evidence for level of reading necessary for the King James Bible. You ought to read one of those 700-page textbooks on philosophy. Bless, bless men like William Tyndale. William Tyndale, who printed the Bible in English for the first time, said, I'll make every plow boy in England know more truth than the bishops. Praise the Lord. Yes, plow boy. He probably read Fox's Book of Martyrs and knew a little bit of English, but he got a King James Bible stuffed into his hands. Ecclesiastes. I wonder what that word. Oh, there's the definition for that word. The preacher. Don't you like your King James Bibles? The preacher. Well, what does this preacher have to say to me? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. I can do that. And there's a plowboy out there in the fields of England, thanks to William Tyndale with the word of God in his back pocket. What's the shape of that thing? In his back pocket, a plowboy, knowing more than the bishops of the Church of England and the Catholic Church. Love this Bible. Amen. You know, it's Catholics that kiss it, but I sure, I sure want to kiss it at times. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean in a, I don't mean in a ritualistic way. I mean in an affectionate way. This is one wonderful book. Amen. I don't want to sow anything evil in your hearts. But if you, if you would like an exercise in appreciating the Bible, just type in schools of philosophy in a Google search box. And just start with the Wikipedia document that comes up that lists the top ten schools of philosophy in the world. Read the first paragraph for each one. You will not believe it. It is total insanity. Right. There isn't a thinking man alive with one ounce of common sense left that would ever believe anything those men have written. But do you know, do you know what gets me so excited when I read those? God told me that's just what he would yes. do to the yeah. wise of this world. And I look at that as just one more confirmation. The Bible's true. God told me he was going to rewire them and turn them upside down and turn them into fools. Then when I read that they're fools, it's true one more time. Amen. The Bible is true. Solomon's method is going to be unusual. He's going to say lots of things from a natural standpoint in the book of Ecclesiastes that we've got to understand that he's talking and thinking from a natural standpoint without God in the equation. 
You're to understand that because you've already read the conclusion. The conclusion is, of the whole matter, fear God and keep His commandments. Sometimes He's going to look at natural things with God in the equation. So sometimes it's going to look that life is just totally hopeless and there's nothing good or pleasant that we can ever have. Then there's going to be times where life is good and there are things that we can enjoy. And it's our job to rightly divide the word of truth so that we end up with the whole book making wonderful sense. The content of this book. Can I get you excited to read the book of Ecclesiastes? Did you know, for those of you that have taken anatomy, have you taken anatomy? You taking anatomy. I know a bunch of you have taken anatomy. You want to learn all about the human anatomy and how it decays because of sin? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the first ten verses. They're wonderful verses. They talk about your grinders being few. This, this is in a book that you read in 36 minutes. He is going to take apart your body and the effects of sin on it. And he's going to tell you from that lesson that while you're young and healthy, you ought to remember your creator. Right. It's beautiful. The, the strong men are bowed over. You're afraid of heights. You know, I'm only 51, but I think if you made me stand in a phone book, I'd be afraid. My life has changed. I used to be crazy. My mother used to come out of the house and look up on the top of a tree, and I'd be going back and forth on the skinniest limb I could get on up there, just rocking in the breeze. She'd be screaming for Johnny to come down. I wouldn't get near that tree now, except with a chainsaw. I wouldn't go up in any tree. What a difference. But it's all described there. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in 36 minutes of reading, in 12 little chapters. It teaches us that we have an immortal spirit, that we are different than beasts. You know, men look at us that we're just like beasts, because we die like beasts, but their spirit goes down to the earth, and our spirit goes back to the God that made it. Amen. That's in the book of Ecclesiastes. Over and over, Solomon's going to teach the superiority of wisdom to folly. He's going to teach it by rules, and he's going to teach it by his experience, and he's going to teach it by illustrations. Right. All in this little book. He's going to teach us that childhood and youth are vanity. He tells us elsewhere how to get that vanity out of them. Right. He's going to tell us that the old age should not be called the golden years. Because the sun stops shining, and the moon stops shining, and the stars stop shining. And the clouds return after the rain. As soon as you solve one physical problem, guess what? The clouds are coming back for another one. He's going to tell us that. He's going to tell us about the various evils of money, and he's going to list quite a few of them. And we're going to listen to him because he had lots of it. He had lots of it in the beginning, and he had lots of it at the end, but he still told us that money was a terrible evil, and it brought evil diseases upon men. He's going to show us that God's providence reduces all men to a common ground so that we are left with nothing but God to trust in. God reduces us by providential events in our lives to where we can find nothing out but God. He's going to show us that sober musing in a funeral is better than laughing at a party, a birthday party. He's going to teach us that all in 12 little chapters. He's going to give us, by inspiration, the secret key to a successful life and eternity, which which we've already covered. He's going to show us that the folly of religious words are terrible, and that rather we ought to be emphasizing hearing and doing. Be swift to hear, not to speak when you enter the house of God, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us that there's a day of judgment coming that's going to make all men accountable to God. He's going to compare the pleasure of a good woman as one of God's gifts in life. And he's going to say that he never found one because he tried a thousand and that they are an invention of men. Polygamy is an invention of men that ruins men. And he's going to say that a bad woman is worse than death itself. Chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. He's going to describe the true nature of charity and how that you ought to give and trust God's providence in chapter 11. He's going to tell us how society ought to function, all in one little book of 12 chapters. He's going to give us political theory. He was a king, and he's going to talk about kings. He's going to talk about the various levels of society and how they ought to relate to one another, all in one little book. He's going to address the proper nature of eating. He's going to tell you that you ought to eat for strength, 
rather than just pleasure. We get both when we do it right. But he warns us about a nation where those that leaders in business or leaders in politics eat giant breakfasts. He's going to take that up in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to show us what kind of an attitude we ought to have and how we can have peace when we see political injustice being done in the world. He's going to tell us what happens when we de- delay executing judgment on criminals. He's going to tell us four very specific benefits of human society and how people relate together. Right. Chapter 4. He's going to cover it all in just a few verses. You have never read a book as concise as the Bible. Right. And Ecclesiastes is one of them. There is so much knowledge and information, history and poetry, conveyed through the Bible in just a very reasonable book. Those of you that are going to school, you've got to buy a book this big, this wide, this thick, 100, 150 bucks per book for each class that you only spend 16 weeks times 3 hours studying that book. And it doesn't even have the truth in it anyway. You can fill up a whole library once you get a degree with the books you bought. If you bought them all and didn't sell them to other students. But look at this. This is a library. This has 66 books in it by 40 authors. And God chose Solomon to write us the book that has philosophy. While follies mentioned in this book and madness and sin and wickedness are described, no savior is offered. No savior is described. No savior is prophesied. Don't let that trouble you about the book of Ecclesiastes. I already gave away the clue. It leaves you, it leaves you needing, desiring, waiting for, and appreciating the New Testament, which is what the Old Testament was supposed to do. Because Galatians chapter 4 tells us, or 3 or 5, tells us that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And Ecclesiastes is part of the law. When we look at the whole Old Testament as the law, and it brings us to Christ by leaving us dependent upon him to be saved in that great day of judgment. Don't you ever forget what I've told you a couple of times today, please. That Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, said that the Queen of the South would rise up in judgment with that generation. That generation of men who did not appreciate Jesus of Nazareth, in whom was the fullness of the Godhead, He proved it by his miracles. He said, if you don't believe my words, then believe my works. They did not. They rejected him. They said what he was doing was by the power of Beelzebub. And he said the queen of the south will rise up in the day of judgment because she rejoiced at seeing Solomon. Have you read her testimony? She said the half hadn't been told me of how fantastic it is to be here in your presence and to hear you speak, to hear about your wisdom and to see the conduct of all your servants. She will rise up in the day of judgment against the generation that rejected Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, because a greater than Solomon is here. We want to give the Lord Jesus Christ the greater glory than Solomon. But we're also thankful for God raising up Solomon to write us this book. All the rules of interpretation should be followed just like we would study any other book. But in Ecclesiastes, the larger context is very important because you can become an atheist faster in Ecclesiastes than any book of the Bible. Because if you read some of those sentences without remembering the conclusion at the end, they sound like an atheistic hedonist that life is just for pleasure and you ought to get as much as you can before you die because life is just vain. But you, we are to remember at all times that he is writing us with a lesson, the conclusion of the whole matter. Every sentence he wrote, every chapter, the conclusion of the whole matter is fear God and keep his commandments. That perspective will help you very much. If you Solomon is trying to convey this point. How is he doing it right now? Because sometimes he's going to speak naturally to show you that life without God is hopeless, is vain, and in fact, it's all vanity, and it's vanity of vanities. But then he'll correct it if you keep reading and you have the proper perspective. On the other hand, some people are driven to despair by the book of Ecclesiastes, that there's no way to have a happy life and that we're just consigned here like prisoners until we go to heaven. But that isn't true either. 
we, it's a win-win philosophy, and God's given it to us, and it's true, and you can trust it because it's inspired by God and given to us through Solomon. It wasn't Solomon's design to drive people out of the world or to make them live wretchedly in it. It was his design to teach them to fear God and to keep his commandments and enjoy the things he gives us in the moderation and way in which he prescribes in his word. He tells us how to have all those things. You have truth in your hands. The Bible tells us that if we're hearers of the word only, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, and it's a terrible travesty. We ought to be hearers and doers of the word. Take this week to read the book of Ecclesiastes. Prepare yourself in it. Get familiar with the chapters and where the different lessons are, and we'll go through those lessons and we'll learn them. Don't ever back down. And you young people that have to go to school and face these vain philosophies, you sit, you sit there in your heart and know that you have the answers. You esteem God's precepts concerning all things to be right and hate every false way. Right. You have the answers. The greatest big questions of the universe, the answers are in the Bible and in the book of Ecclesiastes. Set your heart this day, and all the children should know the verse. Ecclesiastes 12:13. let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is how we're going to live. That is how God wants us to live. That is the philosophy of the word of God. That is the philosophy of a Christian. That is a philosophy that excels all the philosophies of the world, the best philosophy in the world, whatever that might be, like light excels darkness, like the God of heaven excels the deities that they call gods. We have everything, but it it will not value us. It will not help us. It will not direct us unless we do it. We have to read it and apply it. Read the book. We're going to take it apart sentence by sentence with the Lord's help. And may the Lord bless us to fear him and to keep his commandments, to enjoy life here and hereafter, to win and to win by pure mercy. He saved us and he gave us the truth all by pure mercy. May Jesus Christ, who is greater than Solomon and who is the way, the truth and the life, be honored and glorified as we learn this book.